This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm Paul Anthony Nelson and joining me in the cave tonight are Captain Fantastic Emma Westwood. Yeehaw! Appropriate response. And I don't the, know why I did that. But. No, it's appropriate because and the brown dirt cowboy, Stella Christie. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Yeehaw! <laughs> brown dirt? It's a, it's a reference to a certain album by a certain artist okay, that right. we'll be discussing very soon. Yeah, it's all It's all tied in. <laughs> On tonight's show, we'll pack our bags tonight pre-flight for the Elton John musical biopic Rocket Man. We'll ride our motorcycle into a small country town of patriarchal hell in tonight's retro title, the 1988 Australian classic Shame. And then we'll see what would happen if Superman became the omen in the super horror hybrid Brightburn. But first, resplendent in a glorious orange devil costume, Elton John, played by Welsh <laughs> actor Taron Egerton, bursts into a 12-step meeting and thus begins Rocket Man. In smart, elegy fashion, Elton starts to recount the details of the events that led him to this point. This reminiscence uh, leads to a cast rendition of The Bitch's Back to describe his childhood before looking at his first gigs in pitiless English pubs through the lens of Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. Executive produced by its subject and directed by actor-turned-filmmaker Dexter Fletcher, who last gave us Eddie the Eagle, and helped finish off uh, the last blockbuster musical biopic we all saw. More on that later. Rocket... (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure we won't mention it, of course. (laughs) Never. Um, They'll never come up in regard to this film, ever. Walk hard the Dewey Cox story. (laughs) Isn't that what we're talking about? Yes. 100%. (laughs) (laughs) Rocket Man is described as a musical fantasy take on the biopic as in a non-specific in non-specific chronological order we follow Elton through meeting his lifelong friend and lyricist Bernie Taupin played here by Jamie Bell his manager and lover John Reed, played by Richard Madden and his battles with addiction to well everything his uh, his tantrums, tiaras, and all the hits in between, as well as his conflicted relationship with his own family, all illustrated by whichever is the most emotionally appropriate song at the time, all sung by the cast themselves. Sally, where are you going to come down? Where are you going to land <laughs> on Rocket Man? She needs another I... vodka and tonic to get her on her feet again. <laughs> uh-huh. No, I'm not going to sing. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Um, I think I'm kind of landing in the middle with this one. I think there were really good things about this film and I I went into it not knowing that it was actually a musical like as in a they're going to break out and sing in the street musical and I am a fan of biopics and I am a fan of musicals. Um, Just to kind of get straight into it, of course we're going to talk about this in regards to Bohemian Rhapsody. It's impossible not to. Have you both? Emma, I don't know. Did you see Bohemian Rhapsody? Yeah, I did. You did. You did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't I on the it. show, yeah. but I saw it. Yep. Mm. I felt I needed to take it upon myself yes. and see it to shoulder the load of film criticism. Uh, <laughs> I feel that this film was successful in areas where Bohemian Rhapsody failed miserably particularly in regards to the way that it dealt with the main subject's queerness, where 
in Rocketman, it was, you know, just a part of his ears. There was still a struggle with it. That wasn't downplayed whatsoever. But in Bohemian Rhapsody, it was almost like the kind of expecting some gay guy twirling a moustache kind of villain coming out towards the end that it just dealt with his Freddie Mercury sexuality in such a, you know, ridiculous way that I thought that Rocketman was triumphant there. And I also really liked the way that it linked childhood trauma to addiction as well. I thought that was really clever. Um, as for the musical <coughs> have numbers... Have you watched Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox yes, story? Yes, I have. But I didn't <laughs> Isn't really that every music it. biopic? No, well, <laughs> childhood I, tra- trauma to addiction? Look, to an extent, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I do think that this did it quite well. Okay. But as for the musical numbers, I wasn't completely sold by them. Remembers, it's a really forgettable film across the universe. Anyone yes. remember that one? Mm. There was a lot of... <laughs> that was a movie I really, really despised. <laughs> and there was a lot of sections about Rocketman that reminded me of Across the Universe. Um, so there were things that I thought was were really great about Rocketman, um, if we're looking at recent musical biopics, I do think it was far more successful than Bohemian Rhapsody was. And I love the opening sequence when he came in, that kind of big triumphant thing, and then he walks in, he's in 12-step program. I loved that. I thought that was an excellent way mm. to start a film. So, yeah, good things and bad things. I'm landing in the middle again with this one. You're in the middle of the road. Yep. That's very Elton John of yeah, you. I know. <laughs> very M.O.R. Uh-huh. Mm. <laughs> I think... Um, yeah, I th- I, th- I feel this similar to you, Sal, really. I think that um, I was surprised by the elements of magical realism in this film. I didn't really know what I was in for. I think I thought I would w- would be in for a replica of Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, that's definitely what I expected. Yeah, and I think that, you know, everything that you said, tick, tick, tick. Same from me, so I won't repeat it. Uh, I th- thought that um, the musical numbers, though, were had very much of a... This is a stage version of Muriel's Wedding rather than Muriel's Wedding <laughs> of it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas... Um, the Bohemian Rhapsody, the songs, I don't, the, the musical renditions felt much better because I felt more like Queen. That's why. Yeah, it was more exhilarating seeing the musical renditions in Bohemian Rhapsody compared to Rocket Man. Yeah, definitely. I agree yeah. 100%. Mm. And there was also this feeling of being, considering when you really listen to the words of what Elton John's saying about his life in his 12-step program and then then when we rewind back over his life as part of the film, there's this feeling of being glossed over, like incredibly glossed over. Mm. To be totally honest, I think that Elton John probably does not remember a lot of <laughs> his life. For good reason. Yeah. I know David Bowie was the same and Didn't could not Bowie remember. Say that he just doesn't remember that he didn't remember the 80s at all. No, <laughs> he can't remember recording albums, you know, the whole recording of albums. So this idea, I feel that this is a different movie because Elton John was involved in it. Oh, a very different movie. But then the, all the sort of remaining members of Queen were heavily involved in Bohemian Rhapsody So as well. that, yeah, yeah. Mm. Well. Not necessarily, I wouldn't say, uh, when I say it would be a different movie, not in comparison to Bohemian Rhapsody, but as in what the Elton John story could Could be. be, Yeah. Yeah. That's what I feel. Mm -hmm. (laughs) See, first, I mean, the thing that's hard to avoid with this, it it is 
Elton John's monument to himself. Yes, <laughs> yes, it's true, it is. which it is, is hilarious, yeah. and it's a very Elton John thing to do. Yeah, um, that out of the way. I had a hell of a lot of fun with this. I was so shocked because I thought I was going to hate it. Um, I thought Bohemian Rhapsody was very average. Um, Bohemian Rhapsody seemed to be an exercise in, and, uh, you know, you don't want to review one film against the other, but it seemed to be an exercise in... It's very hard not to. Yeah, at this point, it it is difficult to have. Yeah, a creative. It's hard to have a conversation without bringing them, you know, both into it. And and I feel like Bohemian Rhapsody did as little as possible. Like, like it's like, what's what's the smallest possible effort we can make to make a film enjoyable? And it's like, if we just Mm. just reenact Live Aid for 20 minutes, that'll be fine. Everybody everyone goes out, it. and it's well, like because it. everyone it's loves Queen song. Exactly, exactly. Just watch it. It's like, and you know, like, Remy. and his parents loved him at the end. Oh, didn't they? Though? Like on the way to Live Aid, they loved him. Uh, yeah, <laughs> didn't you? He got AIDS the morning of Live Aid. Didn't That's you know right. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so amazing how it all comes together like that. Exactly. Oh, and I he found the love of his life as well, and all in that one day. It's <laughs> What a day. That's what it should have been called. What a day. What a day. Freddie, Freddie Mercury's fantastic day. <laughs> Freddie Mercury's day off. Um, that's the thing. It's like, but I think this, like, I love that this is, um, firstly, I would say, like, look, Rami Malek's work as Mercury is, like, stunning imitation. Mm. It's a great imitation. I think Edgerton's performance is pound for pound a better performance. Mm. Like, if he's not at least nominated for something at the year's end, like, I think he gives... It's full of exuberance, energy and wit. He 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 carries off the singing nicely. It's that sort of thing where he embodies Elton John but goes beyond mere impression and it becomes a mixture of the two. Yeah. It brings a lot of himself to the role as well. And I think he absolutely kills it, as does Jamie Bell as Bernie Taupin. I and am that's a, a big fan of Jamie Bell ever since um, film stars... Don't Die in Liverpool, which I think we talked about in this show last year. He's bloody good, Jamie mm. Bell, and he was excellent in this. Have you two seen Nymphomaniac, the last one, true yes. film? Yep. Yes. Him in Nymphomaniac yep. is, mm-hmm. oh, he's fantastic. Yep. He's great. Also, Taron Egerton's great in everything, like The Kingsman. He was fantastic in that I, as well. I haven't seen those films. I've only seen a couple oh, of his. He, he was brilliant in that. Uh, the, 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 the screenwriter of this, I think, uh, Lee Hall, is that right? Mm-hmm. He yep. wrote um, Billy Elliot. That's the Jamie Bell yes. connection. So. Yeah. Little Jamie Bell. Mm. <laughs> Little dancing Jamie Little Bell. Dance ja- but, uh, <laughs> Tiny dancer. <laughs> there it is. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, Carl, get me out of here. Um, <laughs> but the, I just, and that's the thing. I think the film, like, I think the stuff with his family at the start doesn't work quite as well. I think the numbers really need Edgerton in them in order to kind of soar. And uh, the stuff with the kid and everything, and, and, and the weirdly cast Bryce Dallas Howard. Like, mm. I, mm. I like her as an actor, but it's like you couldn't have just cast any English actor and not given her a CGI face job halfway through the movie. Yeah. It yeah. very strange and artificial. There were a lot of British actresses that could have filled that role. Mm-hmm. It seemed odd. It just, yeah, I, it's like, oh, was she contingent on getting the money or something? I, I didn't I didn't quite know what that was about. Mm. But having said that, once... Um, Elton John likes her. That might be oh, I'm just making that it could, as a could guess. Be, you yeah. know, it's, who knows? It's as likely as any other. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. making up facts now. Yeah, I am. <laughs> Fake no, no. Wait for the rest of the show. <laughs> But the, I think that, um, but once, um, once the Saturday night for fighting number starts, and mm. then we get into, you know, um, 
Elton John and Bernie Taupin's story and their friendship, the film really began to soar for me and I, and I just was completely enraptured by it. I like this idea. I think it's slightly different to other musical biopics, not in structure, but I think this is. I think the musical fantasy adds a real element to it and it becomes a, an emotional biopic. It's, an emo, it's, it's a biopic placed on the emotions of the artist mm. rather than a ticking off of events. It's like, well, this is... This is, uh, it's almost like, it, it, and between Edgerton's performance and the way it's structured and the exuberance of the songs, it felt very Elton. Mm. And it felt like this is almost how Elton John would imagine his own life potentially. Mm. And it felt, uh, and I actually really love that as a technique. And it, and it actually, and I can't think of another biopic, certainly recently, that has been like that. Um, no, I can't either. I think you're right there, Paul. I think that it's something you have to read it from that way. I think you get more from it if you read it that way. And if you come in expecting a musical rather than a music biopic, you're going to get more from it as well, which suits the Elton John yeah. Absolutely. A persona, the glitz, the glamour, the magical. He's, you know, it's it's... Starlight Express, for yep. Christ's sake, yeah. you know that's what but he's with, like with better songs. And and yeah. having said this too, your 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 mileage for this film will one hundred percent vary upon your attitude towards Elton John's music. Like if you like if you dig Elton John's songs from nineteen seventy to eighty three, you're going to have a great time. If you don't, probably want to. I have to see s- something. I else. have to say, I would not call myself a big Elton John fan, but I appreciate. Levels of I think just because you, you know you grow up with Elton John and Elton John is just there, mm. you know, particularly so, during that period. Yeah, but also I just think of being a kid when I'm still standing came out, and the way that they presented that in the the film to go, oh, hang on, this actually has totally different meaning to what I I, I never I really, thought of it. I really that enjoyed way. that. That was yeah. one sort of part of the film that I did really enjoy the way that they presented I'm still standing. Um I won't go into it. Yes, the effect quite, that quite they late. Yes. But um yeah, it, it is interesting with the music because you know, I was saying before there were parts of the music that I didn't enjoy. And what you were saying Paul is up until that point where he does start singing Saturday night. That is when it takes off. And when, you know, he's singing these renditions, it felt, you know, it was good. It was good. I really enjoyed it. But um, it was kind of when the other cast members were pitching in that it came off as being a bit naff for me. Yeah. But, um, yeah, he was great. Definitely carried it for sure. Yeah, I just thought it was an astonishing performance. And, mm. and I like, it, it made me, because like, I am quite fond of Elton John's music from that period. Yeah. Um, and so I was, like, Totally uh, swept along by that as well. Um, I loved how fucking queer this film is. I I really appreciated that Mm. so much. And with apparently, I I read this in no less than The Hollywood Reporter, apparently it's the first, like, proper major studio film to feature gay sex, to depict gay sex. Because there's what? Really? Because everything else is either from subsidiaries, like Mm. like Brokeback Mountain was Focus Features, which is a universal offshoot. There is one kind of, you know, quite, you know, like a sex scene. Mm. Someone was telling me the other day that with Rob Stark... For all the Game that, of Thrones fans, yeah, who it was, <laughs> Rob Stark. Someone was telling me the other day that they were in um, the cinema watching this, and that there was someone sitting with them went, "Oh, that's a bit much, don't you think?" Oh. But um, I really that was one thing that really I loved about this film was the way that it celebrated his queerness and the way that it didn't sort of push it to the side. Um, you know, it's an important part of his personality. Well, it's a was, struggle and, and that, that he's had. Yeah. And it also looked it, – it did still look at that struggle and, you know, at that point in time and 
Yeah, I, I thought that was really one of the main, main highlights of this film was how queer it was. And that scene, uh, that, that sex scene is exhilarating. Yeah, exactly. Because they've got yeah. the... Um, oh, I'm blanking on the track. Um, oh, I can't remember the uh, track It's a, a really great track over it, and it's like it all just works. I was too busy watching the me, sex. Sorry. <laughs> take me to the pilot. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yes. It's one of the lesser known ones. And yeah. yeah. Um, and that whole thing is just exhilarating. Like, na, it actually na, put me na, back in my seat. No, no, no. No, no, no. So, see? Yeah. There you it's go. one of my faves. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, and it made me actually sit back and go, wow, I can't believe I'm, I'm seeing this in a major movie. This is fantastic. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, Elton's involvement was definitely the part of the reason for that. But I've, I've read um, Paramount were really big on that as well. It's like, no, no, we want to make this really, uh, really queer and really. And I, I think it's honest about Elton John always someone who's very honest about his faults yes mm. and so it's terms of like you know snorting coke and you know and and having sex with anybody and uh you know all the drug taking and all the you know all the like craziness is all depicted everything you know I, they didn't touch a, he, he mentions the bulimia but it doesn't mm. it it touches on it a little bit but you know literally the 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 it's amazing is alive. Let's just say that yes. it's incredible that we've still got Elton John. <laughs> it is, and and I, yeah, no, I'm, I'm shocked. I thought I'd hate this, but I, uh, I I did enjoy this a whole lot more than I anticipated that I would. So uh, that's uh, Elton John one, <laughs> Freddie Mercury nil. <laughs> Rocket <Poor> Freddie. <laughs> And actually, I've got to say this last thing. You're absolutely right. And and this film, I came out of it feeling happy, but also made me a little bit sad because I, I, it made me think, what if somebody had done this for Freddie? Exactly. Like, this it's is true. what Bohemian Rhapsody should yeah. have been. Mm-hmm. I would have liked to see the Freddie Mercury film with Freddie Mercury around to be EP. Yeah. Oh, and what would happen then? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. It's, and sad we'll never see it. On that bum note, <laughs> Rocket Man is now showing in major cinemas across Australia now. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Now, let's head back to the 1980s, where a young Deborah Lee Finesse donned her black leathers, rode her motorcycle into the worst of Australian small towns and became a star in tonight's retro title, Steve Jodrell's 1988 film, Shame. Like an Avenger in black, Asta Cadell, played by the immediately commanding Deborah Lee Finesse, rides her damaged motorbike into the small Western Australia town of Jinbarak, a fictional name which cleverly fuses, apparently, um, the Aboriginal words for woman and abuse. When she stops to ask for directions to the nearest mechanic, Asta is immediately leered at and repeatedly propositioned by a carload of lecherous young men. Brushing them off, she arrives at the mechanics to find a, a curious dynamic. After dealing with an equally leering apprentice, Asta finds the mechanic, Tim Curtis, played here by Tony Barry, to be withdrawn and sullen, while his partner Tina and mother Norma seem to be unusually angry and combative. The picture becomes a little clearer when Asta meets Tim's daughter Lizzie, played by Simone Buchanan, who is suffering serious trauma after a sexual assault from multiple assailants, about which her father is in denial. The town's reaction is to brand Lizzie as a slut who somehow deserved it. Uh, With Asta stranded and having to wait for bike parts to be sent from out of town, she stays with the Curtises, befriends Lizzie and is herself set upon by a gang of local boys. But Asta viciously fights back, administering a hell of a beating to the attempted rapists and setting in motion a chain reaction that will lead Lizzie to testify against her own attackers and Tim to believe his daughter and deal with his own inaction. As Asta 
who's quickly revealed to be a big city barrister who knows a thing or two about fighting rapists and institutionalised misogyny, starts to give the women in town the courage to resist the reign of terror these hordes of unchecked men have held over it for far too long. But will things in Jinbrak get even worse before they get better? Emma, seeing this film was made 30 long years, and years ago now, and surely we've all learned, and oppressive packs of men don't go around attacking women anymore, how did you find this not-at-all-timely <laughs> film, given it isn't incredibly relevant to our modern world? It's it's interesting that we're doing it this week because it actually fit in perfectly with what you guys were talking about last week. I thought the same thing when I was watching it. Mm-hmm. This yeah. in relation to acute misfortune is... Uh, Incredible, yeah. actually. Mm. I, I thought the same thing. And but I, you, I you had speak. a little discussion, um, Paul, Sally and Flick, last week around this idea of toxic masculinity, shall we call it, in uh, Australian society and um, how that played out in a film for from 2018. And we're now looking back at a film from 1988. And, um, and then we could even go back. I was tempted to, I, this is my retro choice, I was tempted to go back and to 1971 and do a film called Wake in Fright, which is a very similar film, let's just say. So there is this incredible vein of very scary masculinity uh, portrayed in films through um, Australian cinema, although it is, as you were saying last week, Sally, cinema does reflect um, society. So it is there. I'm, I, my um, my uh, uh, osteopath had this great story told me about um, having German tourists come to him and tell him about taking a, getting an old broken-down car and riding into the outback, and he said, first... Don't get an old car. Get one that you know is not going to break down in the outback. Out Secondly, watch um, uh, Wolf Creek before you go because it's actually a documentary. It's not <laughs> a fictional film. That's another Sometimes example, really. I won- yes, yes, another example. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder if that is true. And I've, I've seen stuff like this too, so... Mm. It's interesting, Shame is a film that I had, I chose, but I had never seen. So in some way, us doing these retro films is this, and we had this discussion, Paul, you, me and uh, Cerise about it because Cerise chose uh, Daughters of the Dust without actually seeing it either. And the idea is we go through a little journey with cinema with you too so that we can, you know, find these little films that we've meant to see or bigger films that we've meant to see and and have an excuse to watch them. And this this film sort of is, I think, really important and it is one of those really seminal Australian films, although it's interesting watching it because I think a lot of people would watch it now and feel like it's got a movie of the week vibe to it, if you know what I mean, that kind of uh, daytime drama feel to it. I... Um interesting that you say that was reading something regarding shame where people were saying at the time they felt that way and were shocked when you know the story sort of revealed itself so even when it was released they felt that way kind of so that's kind of of that's probably that's probably the genius of it Mm. it just kind of you know brings you in in its little, you know, comfy embrace and then hits you around the head with some really interesting stuff. And um, I think Deborah Lee Finesse's character, I mean, we see, well, we've just had, um, what was the film with Nicole Kidman? You know, the... Destroyer? Yes, hmm. Destroyer. You know, the although she was kind of destroyed in it, <laughs> um, but more the gritty female 
leather wearing role, you know. I think it was, you know, she was a bit Susie Quattro. I think it was a bit surprising at the time. And, and nowhere near as common in 1988. No, either. no, no. 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 I, I mean, we had uh, uh, not long after that, we had Linda Hamilton doing the Terminator 2 thing. And although I would argue everyone celebrated her as the tough girl, but I would argue that she was actually a really incredibly broken character mm. and it wasn't necessarily that affirming. Whereas Aster in this is she's really self-possessed and she's smart and she doesn't even feel like she has to reveal her true occupation to them straight away because she's kind of she's kind of playing people on their own terms and she's kind of holding the cards close to her and it's the way she gets into this fabric of this town and everyone you know all these these little this you know these awful things come out basically but also um I like the way this film doesn't necessarily show the the uh, the camaraderie of women. I mean, it's she's mm. the the women are really hard bitten. The women are in some ways they're just trying to keep the status quo. They're kind of trying to keep it as it is because they're so they're so broken and hard, and she's in there shaking it up. So that's what's the interesting thing. This kind of strange, like it's not an unusual setup of this idea of this stranger coming to town. Um, the only thing that kind of got me, I did think it sort of went off its tangent towards the end. Um, it had the the whole idea of um, Asta was just the emotional centre at the end, where I felt, you know, there were certain characters are injured or whatever and Aster is the one embracing them and the sort of central grieve the 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 one grieving and it's like what about their actual relatives <laughs> do you know what i mean it kind Just of put them on the back of a truck yeah right. <laughs> it was kind of all centered it was sort of <laughs> centered around her a little bit too much as a starring role but yeah there's a there's a lot to like about this film um i have seen shame before and i find this movie really difficult I, I think it's a very, very hard watch. Um, there are so many things in this film that are heartbreakingly accurate with small town mentality. I grew up in a smallish town and the way in particular that the policeman deals with, you know, rape ac- accusations and how it's sort of brushed off and there's even something in this where they, t- where Simone Buchanan's character says, oh, you know, it's footy season so uh, this might be happening quite a lot, you know, sort of when... I was like, oh, we can't accuse them of that because footy season's about yeah. to start and it'll just derail that, yeah. yeah. Mm. So... Yeah, I, I do. It's such a well. I was going to say it's such a shame. <laughs> it is such a shame that this movie is still so incredibly relevant, and you know exactly what we were talking about last week. Um, and it almost like the the setup of it is similar to Wake and Fright. It is kind of almost that Australian Western film where we have a stranger come in and totally shakes up the structure of the town. I didn't mind her emotional investment in it, to, at, especially towards the end, Emma. I, I thought because it, essentially even though she is not perhaps, say, the victim in this film, it's her story, you know. It's, yeah, I it, know. It's, sort of, it, it's her story. It's, you know, what she is kind of doing to, I guess, 
let other women tell their stories. Yes, okay. Yeah. So I, I, I found that that was okay. It's very hard to talk about it without spoiling I know. it. Even though it's a film from 1988, we do not want to spoil it it's, for anyone. And it is a really important film and it's one of those films where it, it should be watched more than it is. It should be talked about more than it is. Um, I was talking to Emma before the show about it and how you can tell that there's sequences in this film that almost wanted to take it a different way into an action film, which Emma gave me a little bit of insight into. Um, but was was it fun? Yeah. Things that- no, I got an email from Matt Quartermain who plays Brian. He's one of the thugs who's got the – who wears the kind of um, cut-off denim – top in it and he said that his character was meant to have a very spectacular death scene but the the budget was reined in basically at the end because you can tell there's there's one particular scene um involving a motorbike and when she's starting the motorbike up astra starting the motorbike up and there's all these close-ups on it and it feels like you're watching a completely different film (laughs) and you know she kind of hightails it out of this garage so yeah you can see that there were kind of two different ways that they wanted to take this movie but the way that it did end up i think is really vital and it should be seen more for sure I friggin' love this. Mm. Um, anything that tackles social issues in a genre context simply by depicting behaviour and not being preachy is my jam. Yes. Mm. Like, yes. I, this, like, this yep. is I'm just with you, Paul. a yep. way to do it. Absolutely. And, and it's genuinely ausploitation-y at yeah, times. Like, like the, these guys are so accurate within these small mm-hmm. towns because, we've you know, we've seen them and we've passed through. But they also fit into that that favourite ausploitation trope of kind of the skinny, weasley voice, yeah. lentery bar, you know, like the two dudes in Razorback. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I thought of Razorback a lot when I was re-watching this film, actually, that kind of the ma- the way masculinity is portrayed. And Razorback is another sort of yes. really wakey, prime... hangs off snakey. really <laughs> prime example of that in Australia. And um, this... When did the golden age of exploitation end? Uh, it was around 80... It was probably around this time. Because that's yeah. what I was thinking. This film sort of feels to me like it's in that weird limbo of Australian cinema before, you know, a new wave of Australian cinema came became a big thing and exploitation had kind of ended. It feels, yeah, that kind of mm. weird limbo of Australian cinema. Well, it's when 10, the 10BA clause yes. was rolled back, mm, which yeah. is around 88, 89. Yeah. Um, but it's so... Um, and uh, the way it lays that ending on you is just like gut punch mm. like i was genuinely shocked that that was the way they don't had you seen to go it before it. i'd never seen this before. okay great uh and it's a um uh, uh, the way it's uh, it's funny you mentioned like they wanted to go in a different direction the writers um beverly blankenship and michael brinley um beverly blankenship sort of dreamed up the original idea and she was very influenced by mad max She'd Mm. seen Mad Max and wanted to see, uh, had this vision of a woman riding into town Mm -hmm. in the black leathers. And as you you see, Astor is dressed very similarly to the way Mad Max is dressed early in the first film. Um, So there is definitely some influence there and and it kind of wants to be that kind of movie but also about a real-world situation. Mm. Um, And I kind of dug that. I thought Vanessa's a hurricane in this. Like, every time she's on screen, she just grabs her by the throat. And Buchanan is the heart. And grabs some of them by the throat too. Oh, yes. I like that she wasn't scared to physically interact, although when she preps Simone Buchanan's character and she says... You know, Simone Buchanan says, what about if there's six of them? And she's kind of like, oh, well. Yeah, see, and that's just like, I, I was cursing you a little bit under my breath having to rewatch this movie, Emma. I was oh, like, I'm sorry, West Sally. <laughs> no, no, 
because it's such it is such a good film, but it is yeah. it's incredibly difficult because of small things like that where she says, Okay, I can teach you sort of to fight men this way, but then what if there's six of them? Yeah. What can you but do? But I don't think Your heart this just film, sinks when you yeah, hear that. Yeah. I don't think yeah. this film is, you know, like I'd I'd heard of it and I wanted to watch it. I went, yay, excuse. And it's on SBS On Demand for a little while. It's on Prime, whatever. It, it screened at but MIF. Was it, screened yeah, it, at it did, it did screen at MIF. Mm, yeah. Year but before, I think. Year before. Yeah. I still think that, that people don't talk. We talk about Mad Max, but people don't talk about well, this Well, that's the thing. Now. It's a well, it's, it seems to be kind of, it's weird because I always thought of this as a well-known movie. Like, I thought this is a film everyone watched in the late 80s but it seems to be a lot less known than i thought mm-hmm. it should it should be more well known because it's 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 really really cool and and also as you say it's also you know very very confronting at times and very difficult at times um a couple of co- a couple of great things um i mean watching finesse beat ass was just sensational uh but also but there's stuff like the choice not never to show the attack mm. on on simone buchanan's character the fact they they don't actually like not her like, attack or there's other girls who are attacked yeah too, and so it's that thing like, it's yeah. like you can do a rape revenge film without showing yeah. the incident it is interesting the way because it is it is a rape revenge film um and it's interesting how you know because we've yeah, classic exploitation i spit on your grave where it's very very you know in your face and the way that I think, you know, we had a lot of rape revenge coming sort of out of this sort of period of cinema, how they have made that conscious decision not to do that. And in some ways it's more effective. Yeah. Like oh, I, I I watch this and, you know, feel a lot more, I don't know if this is saying something about me, but feel a lot more effective than if I watch something like Miss 45 or, or I Spit on Your well, Grave. Yeah, but, you know, I think it's showing... It hurts my heart more. Yeah, yeah, it's showing also it's about the woman's word, you know, taking someone on their word and this idea that, oh, well, I didn't see it, I don't believe it. Well, it's, you know, let's just look at the culture, let's just look at the people around yeah. there and let's just look at what you're going through and then let's make a judgment mm-hmm. on it. And, and that's quite powerful. Yeah, it's it's and that's the thing, and it's surprisingly progressive and non-male gazy in that way for a film directed yeah. by a man. I, I was quite impressed by that. Well, Steve Jodrell apparently, um, Matt Quartermain says that they most of the cast were his students. He taught at oh, what wow. is now Curtin University, and Matt was himself one of the the students there. And he also says that he made a movie that I and it's on Prime Video as well called Tatawali. Um, from 1987, which is around um, Australia's kind of first Indigenous star who was um, the lead actor in Jeddah, and it has Ernie Digo playing that role. So it's probably another one that's worthwhile checking out. Another film, well, shame I'd heard of, but I hadn't heard of that. And, and he it also sounds like, an, yeah, something he, that's worthwhile looking at. That sounds cool. And he mm. also made a short early in his career called The Bucks Party, which was about, I haven't seen it, but it's about masculinity getting out of control. Oh, so it seems okay. to be like yeah, a yeah. preoccupation. Um, and also, to my point that last last week, films like Shame and Wake and Fright prove that these films don't have to be all stylistically the same, and they don't have exactly. to. They don't have yeah, to be grey and sparse. Like they can be terrific genre movies, yeah. and also this isn't flashy. Realist. It's not a flashy no, exactly looking film. Right. Um, it's just it's, it's really highly narrative. It's, mm. It mm-hmm. focuses on the narrative. It's the I think uh, Wake and Fright is more of a, a visually sumptuous film. Yeah. It, um, it, yeah. It's more stylistically baroque, which is yeah. This is more very straightforward, but but yeah. But I think the performances, particularly of Finesse and Buchanan and Barry and um, 
um, actually another acute misfortune, uh, Gillian Jones, who plays yes. Tina in this film, is in acute misfortune. Yeah. She's Eric's men- uh, journalistic she mentor. Yes. Is she's wonderful terrific. Yeah, in both of the films. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. This cast they just really ground it, and um, in what could have sort of been a bit bigger and a bit crazier. Yeah, they this actually could grounded- have easily moved into straight up exploitation, rape, revenge cinema, mm. and yeah. And the fa- how, it does, how it hasn't. Yeah, just really, uh, and really uh, allows it to, to pack an emotional punch. And I think the ending is a grim reminder of what it takes before things even, ha- what, thing, what has to happen before things even begin to start mm, to change. Mm, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I agree with you too. I think this is a really, a really important movie. Uh, Shame is now streaming on Amazon Prime and SBS On Demand. Three. So now our final film for this evening, Brightburn. In a curious combination of the two late 70s films that made Richard Donner a star director, The Omen and Superman the Movie, writers Mark and Brian Gunn and director David Yarovesky, all co-conspirators of the film's co-producer James Gunn of Guardians of the Galaxy fame, take a different look at the Superman mythos. What if a 12-year-old Clark Kent, upon discovering he was a super-powered alien, didn't devote his life uh, life to the values of truth, justice and the American way, but rather decided to then and there destroy and rule the planet? Of course, copyright laws and such require that this isn't Clark, Superboy or the Kents, but rather Brandon Breyer, his alliterative name being the first of this film's many sly references to the Superman universe, a boy raised in the all-American farmlands of Brightburn, Kansas, by his loving parents. Uh, So at the age of 12, Brandon is a sweet regular kid, clever at school but picked on for it, with a crush on a girl in his class, until he starts hearing voices in his head beckoning beckoning him toward the locked shed in the barn he's been told never to play near. Soon he discovers the truth about his otherworldly heritage and burgeoning superpowers, and even as his parents treat him with love and respect, the voices in his head are telling him his purpose on Earth may not be to save it, but to take it. Emma, did you find this to be a refreshing subversion of the Superman story, or a big old lump of kryptonite? I loved it, I have to say. I went in not sure because you never really know. Um, Garlics of the Galaxy? Garlics. Uh, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy was, you know, really quite um, venerated, shall we say, which was David Yarovesky's previous film, um, one of them. James Gunn is the Guardians of the Galaxy director. David Yarovesky is like a friend of James Gunn who has oh, worked on... Oh, so he on... just hung around yeah, and yeah, had he's, lunch with them. He's, well, he's kind of... I think he has a cameo in the movie um, and they're kind of, yeah, they're like filmmaking Are buddies. you kidding me? You know, he did not make Guardians okay. of the Galaxy. Okay, all right. Yeah. So I saw something that pitched that much, much closely <laughs> like it. He actually made it. Yeah, it's been really billed as a... Look, um, I, have, I didn't see Brightburn, but I'll... Chip in where I can. Yeah, come here. in, come in, Just come in here. Come in, tell us um, something. It's been really built as a James Gunn thing. I think perhaps he's some kind of siblings wrote the screenplay because their surnames are both Gunn. His brother and his cousin. His yeah. brother and his yeah. cousin. Um, I, al- I also love James Gunn's humble beginnings because he started at Troma. He wrote the screenplay for Tromeo and Juliet. Really? Yes, yes, yes. So he was a Troma boy and um, then I think he... Uh, wrote the screenplay for Slither and just kind of worked his way mm. up through horror for Good on him. And then ended up Guardians Galaxy. Well, that's interesting because yeah. this is, well, this is definitely falls in the horror camp, I think, mm. more than the, the superhero camp. And um, it's a, a really tight little horror film. I would say little horror film. It doesn't feel like a, a big blockbuster. Um, it's really quite 
it is the Superman story. It's Superman um, versus the Omen um, with a little bit of It's Alive, Larry Cohen yes. thrown in there. And um, But it's a nice little tight three-act structure film, which is this is what, you know, my bugbear has been with uh, horror for a while now, which even looking back on something like Hereditary, which uh, I feel like is al- almost more of a film that has spectacular sequences that are like a whole lot of short films that sort Wrong. of built up to the end that toppled over, to be totally honest. <laughs> this yep. is a really, really tight film, you know. It, it, it works. It's got a sensational end. It's got a, a couple of super wonderful horror sequences, a wonderful shard in the eye sequence that is then played out beautifully visually with the um, half-bloodied red lens. Um, Yeah. I, and, and I like that it was the parents' view. That's why I actually will c- compared it to It's Alive and The Omen, I think, because it does take that idea of um, a whole lot of stuff around parenting, such as who is this teenager that I now have that is not the child that I thought I gave birth to. Mm. And and also, slight again, the toxic masculinity thing, you know, puberty, like he's, he immediately starts, you know, stalking the girl and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and some of the damage and stuff. There's some genuinely shocking moments in this film as mm-hmm. well, and one including a, uh, involving a broken hand um, that really kind of braced me. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I must be in a good this mood this week. I liked everything. It's <laughs> um, not like you, Paul. It's no, not, is it? No. It's, uh, it's a tight 90-minute film. It did the loud noise scare thing during the first half, but the second half, it had some genuinely inventive he's behind you, he's not there, he's appearing. And the amount of dum- damage he does to people is kind of like what someone of this power level would actually do to the human body. It's mm. quite... Yeah, I, I really dug it as well. It's it's a, yeah, it's 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 a tight, unpretentious little little shot. But also, the stuff with the parents, the way it played out on that level of the the crazy, you know, teen. Where did this teen come from? And then the the also, well, you you had a freaking spaceship land in your 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 backyard, and then you wonder why it went wrong. This kind of yeah, this idea of. Um, Oh, I'm not looking at something. I'm not going to see it sort of thing. Uh, I thought that played out really strongly. And they were great. Elizabeth Banks was fantastic. Who's the dude? David Denman. He's he from The Office. He was great. Yeah. Is he from The Office? Yeah, he's um, Pam's jerkwad boyfriend. Ah, yeah. okay. I liked him. A big, big fellow. Good. No, it's no, I agree. <laughs> Big fellow, good. Big fellow, good. Uh, Brightburn is now screening in most major cinemas around Australia. Uh, you're listening to Plato's Cave on 3 Triple R. On tonight's show, we discussed Rocket Man, which is screening at all major cinemas. Shame, which is streaming on Amazon Prime and SBS On Demand. And Brightburn, which is screening at most major cinemas. You can listen to the back to the show within half an hour on Triple R On Demand or check out the songs we played on the Plato's Cave page at triplr.org.au right now. You can also subscribe to the Plato's Cave podcast via iTunes. Next week, the cave will be digging into... Um, we are going to be looking at Red, Red Joan and... Happy as Lazaro. Happy as Lazaro and our retro pick, which is my retro pick of the week, is Silence of the Lambs. Thank you, Clarice. <laughs> and a huge thank you to Faith Everard for editing the Plato's the Cave lotion. podcast. <laughs> It rubs, faith rubs the lotion into the edit. <laughs> uh, Carl Chapman, his big bag of triple R ident for panelling the show. Lethal Lisa Kovacevic for producing our show. 
This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.